So we were we were kind of remiss in uh, in doing a show before we went to about nineteen different events. Yeah, but now we can talk about what happened for yeah. a lot of this stuff. There was a lot of stuff that happened. Hi, I'm George Techmanshub here with Steve the Weltmeisterschaft Anderson. I'm not going to get used to that. <laughs> I'm just not. <laughs> Feldbogen Weltmeisterschaft. All uh, right, and oh, I my. I am never. You're not going to get used to it, and I'm never going to get tired of it. I'm not tired of it. It's awesome. I'm not tired of it. We had uh, Brady and Toya here yesterday. I I didn't see him. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, was, I was doing the tour. You were busy. I had ATA crisis mode. No. Yeah. So you know it was really cool. You know, um, you know, we're so used to having Brady around, but you know, I I haven't spent a lot of time around Toya. And first off, she's a serious fire plug. I mean, that woman is like, uh, you know, she's cool, but she's kind of how do I put this? She, she does not hide her emotions. You know what I'm saying? Right. And she's walking through the factory with Brady and me, and I'm introducing her to the workers, and, you know, everybody's posing for pictures with Brady, and, you know, because they all know who he is, of course. And um, she gets all emotional because she's come to realize, and she, she put it this way, all those people that are working so hard to make the things that I use and, you know, I thought to myself, that's really nice that she has that feeling. And, you know, it's it's really kind of cool. So. It is very cool. Yeah. You know, I, I'd heard about that sort of thing before. You know, when I worked at Hoyt, we had a uh, we had a World Cup in Ogden. And we had a tour of a bunch of the international shooters coming through the Hoyt factory. And there's a, a lady over at Hoyt, Steve, and you know her. And she was the one responsible. She was, she was like the last person to touch a recurve bow before it would go in the box. La. La. And <laughs> it was always, she was always the pers- the last person to inspect a recurve bow before it went in the box. And when one of the shooters, a friend of mine from Canada, when she heard about what La does, she just walked up to La and gave her a big hug. <laughs> I thought that was nice. Isn't that funny? We I knew you were talking about law. You and I have never talked about law once. Not before. once, but you knew. I knew. Yeah, she's she's made herself uh, a very well known lady at Hoyt. Yeah, she's very nice, and she is a multitasking person. Yep. But she's always, you know, she's always so nice and calm, and you know, it's like she puts the little Zen touch on the bow before it goes in the box. She's so cool. Yeah. Every time I would. Uh, give a tour if they had kids she would bring over a keychain for them oh yeah the keychain that would go in the box she would give the the kid a keychain and they would get super excited it was it was like their you know aunt or or grandma really yeah, like yeah, that's she, kind of the she is vibe she's, she like, gives she's off. like your favorite grandma yeah exactly you know and uh and she you know to this day she's still doing her thing over mm-hmm. there so it's really nice all right so um utah open hey congratulations Thanks. You did yeah. good in the basement. Yeah, it was fun tournament. Shot decent in qualification. Um, I shot every arrow into the same hole in the three shoot off ends, which was cool. All three, just it was just it was one of the best uh, the best moments of execution I've had in a, a final or a shoot off. So yeah, it's it actually good. very hard to do in that particular tournament because of the nature of the target butts. Yeah, yeah. It's so. a it's a sort of a non constructed target butt, and the arrows kick all sorts of directions. 
Yeah, and they were kicking like crazy, but I was putting them in the middle. So well, that's good. all that matters. So that's really, really good. And so, uh, you know, around that same time, I had to go off to Lausanne. Yeah. That new World Archery Center. Oh, my. Pretty nice. Huh? Yeah. So I, I sat down with Tom Dillon, interviewed him, and I couldn't get the audio of the interview from Chris Wells, you know, because I, I guess when, you know, when Chris needs something, he gets it. But when I ask for something, I, you know, I don't rate. So <laughs> you just got to wait. I guess. <laughs> but we will share that audio with you if we ever get it. It's <laughs> assuming Chris was actually recording when we did it. But um, <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, what a center. What a place. You know, it's, it's a state-of-the-art, magnificent place. Some of the priorities that they've got in there are, you know, uh, really uh, obviously oriented toward um, events and teaching archery and making it a safe experience. And, you know, um, they did some cool stuff. They did something that I wish we had done at our center here in Salt Lake, which is they actually built the targets right into the wall. So you don't lose that floor space when you move target butts. Right. Right? The target butts are built all the way down the wall so that you can orient to 18 meters or you can orient to 70 meters. And uh, they got this new Dinage foam. Really cool stuff. Hmm. It's an experimental foam that Eric has been working on, and it's it's good stuff. I'm sure it is, yeah. That sounds cool. You know, Europeans always have... They make much better use of space than we do here in the States. Maybe so. We're very wasteful, not efficient. But this thing's at least a third bigger than our center here in Salt Lake. It's huge. Yeah, it's pretty or large as, and in as charge. We, as we say now, it's huge. It's huge. But, um, you know, it's just magnificent, really beautiful. Uh, and the best part is they've got these hydro massage chairs. Oh, my. Mm. 15,000 euros with cost on them. And I'm trying to find a way to rationalize it by maybe selling a Ducati or something. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> that Panigale just sits in the garage. Why do I need that? I could just, I could get a massage chair. <laughs> you could get Groupon massages for, you know, 35 bucks a pop. Yeah, but that would require letting a person touch me. And, you know, I, I'm not into it, that. It, so. Yeah, that, that $35 a pop would go a long way to the 15,000 euros. Yeah, okay, fair enough. But I'll tell you, if you, if you get to use one of these things, you're going to be convinced it's the way to go. I'll find a way. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I didn't find your footprints. <laughs> Guess they covered them up. They must have I'm covered them up. I'm not immortalized. Well, no, they're probably still there, but they probably are still covered there, with yeah. something else. There's you know, just layers of paint over them. But Yeah, so it's a magnificent center, and uh, uh, credit to World Archery for uh, having the vision to put that into the Olympic city of Lausanne. Really a cool place. And mm -hmm. uh, Easton Foundation kicked in about a third of the cost of that thing, so that was in a convoluted way because, it, you know, they, they can't do a direct – contribution to something like that but they did contribute to the world archery foundation which they can do and that that's how that worked so pretty cool pretty cool uh so oh i got to hang out with jay bars and uh, so jay and i you know we flew together from salt lake city to amsterdam and then from amsterdam to geneva and uh we had to kill a morning we didn't you know we didn't have anything scheduled so we're, we're like hey let's go to the olympic museum and see if your bow is on display there jay and he's like, all right, yeah, let's go, just go look, you know. And we come around a corner, and there's Rick McKinney and Denise Parker and just about every other <laughs> person that he shot with back in 88. So <laughs> we got a great group photo, sort of a team reunion. And, and, and the bow was there. And the bow was there. Jay's yeah. bow was on display. 
And didn't some guy try to like run Jay off or something? Well, what happened was, all right, so I took a photo with my iPhone and I, you know, cause it was dark in this particular part of the museum exhibit, relatively dark. I decided to just, you know, you flip on that little flash and this tour guide or whatever they are, you know, museum guard, whatever. They come up to me and they're like, no flash photography. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I didn't realize uh, by the way, that's his bow. And he looks at me and he just goes, yeah, right. And just walks away. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So it was funny. But, uh, geez, Denise hasn't changed a bit. She just looks, you know, the same all the time. It's pretty cool. She must have a Dorian Gray portrait somewhere. Whereas Jay and I, we look completely different than we did back <laughs> in 88. I can assure you of that. Uh, so Lausanne, that was awesome. Um some things happened in Lausanne that were of interest of, uh, to compound people. There was a test of the sort of a interim test of a, shall we call it a normalized, proportionalized, although it isn't, target. Yeah, smaller. Smaller gold. Smaller nine ring. Same ten ring. Yep. Smaller nine ring, therefore proportionately bigger red. The next step is they're going to play with making the whole thing two centimeters smaller. And therefore, um, you know, proportional. But uh, once again, the only person to have shot perfect score in competition did it again that same weekend in the UK, and it was Mr. Mike Schlusser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my thoughts on the target. Um, I think it's dumb. And it'll take about a day to get used to aiming at the smaller gold, and then nothing will change. Everybody well, will still shoot the same scores except club-level people who do occasionally get out you know, near the red or in the red. They will be more frequently the in the red. That is the worry. Your club and intermediate shooters are going to lose score. Yep. So what do you think, Steve? You're a compound guy. You're going to lose heart from – not you, but you know, are club shooters going to maybe lose a little bit of enthusiasm because of a smaller target? Potentially. Uh, you know, It was discussed widely on on the Facebook and some other places, but – the consensus amongst most, you know, both people who are uh, top-level competitors and enthusiasts of the sport, uh, you know, I don't know how many recreational-type people were going on this and commenting, but the consensus was if you want to make a change, just do 11-10-9 scoring or 10-9-8 scoring, something along those lines. Yeah. You know, and then you could just, uh, instead of shifting anything, now, naturally, the problem with that is it's going to take longer to score, and it no longer provides for the continuity, the transparency of a perfect score of being 600, right? Yeah, it'd be six. Well, you could keep it at 600, just move every ring in. Yeah. So the, the Big Ten is now on the compound well, facing. Let, let, let me just nine. back this whole thing. Is it broken? Uh, here's the issue. It's not broken. The only time this, it is, there is an issue. And it's not the qualification scores. One guy has shot perfect. The real issue is how many times do we see 150 versus, you know, against a 150 in head-to-heads at Neem? You know, second round, if you don't shoot a 149 or better, you're out. So, in my opinion, the ideal thing to do would be to, be to move it to 20 meters. Just shoot from 20 meters. But, and that might be doable. There will be clubs that can't. They might have 18 meters, and that's it. There's actually a lot of venues that can't. Yeah, but – that would be the ideal way to do it. I if, agree, if, actually. If you, and, and that's only an issue, 
I think that only solves the issue of the head-to-head 15-arrow match. So, I mean, maybe you leave everything the same in regards to scoring, and and you figure out a different way to do that. I don't know. I don't know how to. I don't know how to handle the 15-arrow match and its you know constant shootoffs. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe shootoffs are a good thing. I know that uh, nothing engages a crowd like a shootoff. Right. You know, you may say that's not the best thing for the shooter. It doesn't always find the best shooter. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but let's face it, crowds love them. Yeah, and I, I'm, you know, until we start seeing consistent 150 uh, head-to-head matches, you know, 150s from each competitor, then it's kind of a game of perfection. It's become that. So 150 beats a 149. You can say, well, I shot a 149 and still lost. Yeah, you did. That's, uh, you know, that's not perfect. It's a game of perfection. Speaking of perfection, if Kuban Chan had been shooting aluminum arrows, arguably he may have very well shot a 600 in Lausanne. Because if you look at the, uh, you look at the out that he had, it was a millimeter, less than a millimeter out. It's, yeah, Both about, of them, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he tied the world record with X10s, and um, Brady set the new world record the week before you know, with his uh, X7s. Yeah, I heard someone was trying to, like, protest Brady's record. I imagine they're dropping their protest now because yeah. there's two 598s on the board. There's a very well-known European archery coach who felt that Brady's record didn't deserve to be ratified because there had been a two-hour break and the DOS then allowed a practice <laughs> end before they resumed scoring. If you ask me, Brady shot the record in spite of that. Yeah, it was because of since rain. His practice end or ends two practice ends they got whatever whatever yeah. they were all tens anyway. And how about this? It was they had a delay because of rain in an indoor indoors. tournament and and the cold temperatures. And I when I found out that that had happened, and if people knew who this coach was, they'd be outraged just as I was. Uh, it's unconscionable. I couldn't believe the nerve, but we won't yeah. go there. We, I doubt he's continuing with that protest because then yeah. he'd just go to coup. Well, know? there's no there's no grounds for protest. That's the thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was just it was stupid. Anyway, all right, I'm, I'm venting. Bangkok, <laughs> Bangkok went uh, swimmingly. Uh, boy, talk about. Be careful what you ask for. You know, I've heard in the past people say, well, if all the Koreans showed up, this is what would happen. Guess what? It's what happened. Yep. In the women's class, 12 of the top 13 in qualification were Korean. Yeah. The worst Korean was 22nd. Yeah. Um, So they they also had a tie of the world record there, 594. And there was another archer with a 592. There was a total of six archers above 585 in the women's recurve class. Right. And none of those Koreans are top tier. Yeah, they're they're not... Uh, they're all basically... They're the, no names that I recognize. Well, they're club-level shooters. I've seen Sim Yiji, yes. the, the girl who qualified yes. number one, I've yes. seen, but only indoors. And she tied the world record. She, she has never made an outdoor team yes. for them. She showed up in Vegas. Right? Yep. She's been in Vegas. Now, these are, these are team members from LH. If you've been to the Vegas shoot, you've seen them. Uh, and also from Hyundai, and there are three different, uh, or two different, excuse me, uh, no, maybe three, three different Hyundai um, teams. There's there's the Hyundai Steel team. Um, I'm working without notes here. The Hyundai Mobilis team, and I'm pretty sure there's a Hyundai Department Store team. Do you know that uh, Miss Chang, uh, who won the Olympic Games in Rio, she's on mm-hmm. the Hyundai Department Store team, which is pretty cool. 
Like that'd be like me shooting for Macy's or. Well, yeah, but think about it. She was in vogue. That's true. After the games. Yes. And boy, does she clean up well. So 12 of the top 16 after the brackets were, were shot were Koreans, including the top four. Mm. They had every mm. medal match, or every medal in. That is just quality right there. Yep. So, so on the men's side, I, and I let me dig up these results here. Uh, we had Kim Jae-hyung from Korea winning uh, over his teammate Guy Dong-hyung and Lee Jong-yung. And eight of the top 11 in qualification from Korea. Yeah. Atnu Das was, uh, was up there in the finals. Um, and Jay Talakdar from India. Uh, so the Indian team actually did pretty well when it came down to the eliminations. Yeah, you they, know, they held their own. Indian guys finished four, five, and six, in fact. Yep. And but, then, uh, you know, that's out of the medals. One, two, and three all went to Korea. Yeah, that's the fact. <laughs> that is the fact. But there's a, a somewhat salty uh, comment that somebody made on our Facebook about the performance of the Indian team. They did fine. They, they did fine. I wouldn't complain about that, you know, that finish, considering those Koreans are in there. The other thing to remember is Kuban Chan. Someone like took exception to them? Not They, they felt they didn't do well? Or? Yeah, they wanted us to comment on how the Indians aren't performing. And I'm like, huh? I'm sorry, they performed just fine. That's just silly. To finish in the top ten there is a great performance. To finish in they the put, top they put, five. Yeah, they put three in the Two out of the top five? Yeah, three in the top six. Uh, India's doing fine. Jay yeah, Talakdar uh, and Atnu Das. Good as they can ask for. They're super competitors, and they're going to do just fine this upcoming season. Um, a lot of big names, though, in the uh, top 20 at that event. Uh, for example, Kuban Chan, Ojin Hyuk, world indoor champion Ryan Tayak from Oz, um, you know, Rahul Banerjee was in there uh, fighting, fighting it out. And, um, you know, just uh, if the Koreans hadn't shown up, it would have been an Indian sweep, arguably. Yeah. So, you know, I think India did just fine. Uh, looking at the recurve women's category, uh, Korea, 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 Korea. So <laughs> that pretty well. And, and kudos to Katuna Lorig, the only non-Korean in the top eight. Yeah. So, my goodness. Um, the, the compound side was interesting. The compound the, uh, side was very interesting. There's a lot of – I heard that some people were complaining about the lighting conditions, and um, I, I guess for qualification. I didn't see them – I haven't looked at a lot of photos. Stuff I saw from qualification looked fairly normal. You know, Mike shot a 599, so – Either you could say, well, the lighting was good enough that a guy shot a 599, or you could say, well, the lighting was so bad that Mr. Perfect missed one, unbelievable, and shot a lousy 599. Mm, Only a 599. Yeah, only four competitors in the men's compound over 590, and only three in women's compound over 380, or 580. Speaking of lighting conditions, though, you know, um, just going back to Lausanne for a second, it's the last end. I'm coaching a shooter over there, and I'm standing on the line, and the shooter gets the full draw. All the shooters are at full draw, and the lights go out. <laughs> at the stroke of noon, the server that runs all the electrical systems in the building reset itself for some you know buggy reason because it's a brand-new building. Right. And um, my shooter shot her shot, and it was a 10. Um, I believe, I didn't see it directly, but I believe that that was the arrow that was a millimeter out for Kuban Chan. Oh. Yeah. So, 
I bet he would be really upset if he didn't have a 30-pound gold medal from the Olympics hanging around his neck. <laughs> yeah, I bet he doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> Compound women was interesting in, um, in, in so much as there's one person who is back. Do you know who I'm talking about? Um, After seven years. Uh, Linda told me about her. Sofia Goncharova, who's yeah. now Sofia Silakova. From Russia. From Russia. So, so Sofia is a two-time world champion, two-time World Cup champion, and one of the most delightful shooters I know, and she's back in action, which is really cool. Yeah, Linda Linda told me about her. I've never met her. Um, you know, finished in that top, top nine melange, you know, the, the yeah. bunch of people in the you know, top nine. Yeah. So not bad, considering she hadn't picked up a bow in a long, long time. Yeah, it was... Uh not not probably not the scores she's accustomed to shooting but no but she's just getting started again yep. so you know i mean that's pretty solid performance considering i i had heard that she walked away from the sport over a dispute about which bow she was being forced to shoot by the federation perhaps but i think the reality is she also had a shoulder injury uh which is I, i've seen a number of those out of the uh the russian compound women albina for example yeah they they kind of Personally, I think they push them to a high volume of arrows, much like recurve, and that's not good. Perhaps you're right. Anyway, Danielle Wenzel from South Africa took third, uh, beating Natalia Avdieva of Russian Federation. And then uh, Soche One of Korea took it to a shoot-off with Sarah Preels. And uh, Sarah shot for Great Britain. So, so I've seen Sarah shoot for France. I've seen her shoot for Belgium, and I've seen her shoot for GBR. She's shooting for GBR. I don't get it because it's all there hasn't been a year gap in anything. Whatever, I don't know. I, I saw that GBR and I'm like GBR. I guess uh, she's been well, coached in. Well, know. I guess this is probably not reflective of your nation, but where you registered at, or how you registered. You know, she might have addressed herself as Korean or <laughs> Korean, British UK. I don't think she could go and compete for UK at a uh, like a. A non-open event. Yeah, this was an open event, yeah. so passports aren't part of the deal. Yeah, I, I probably could have put, you know... Yeah, good point. Something weird is my address. And Anyway, biggest turnout ever for an uh, indoor World Cup uh, event, other than, you know, I mean for... You other, know, than name, other than Neem. Other than For the, one of the first two. Yeah, pretty solid. So, uh, cool. I don't think it's going back to uh, Morocco. I think they're coming up with a different venue for that. And I think they are going ahead. I'm pretty sure that, that that's in the minutes of the... They just had a uh, council meeting. World Archery Council meeting in Lausanne during this opening thing. And they are going ahead with changing the world championship into this World Cup indoor circuit thing. So next world championship probably will indeed be the last, and that's going to be in Yankton. And that's if they hold it now, I guess, because they may be moving yeah. ahead on this plan. I don't know. I don't know. It's almost in the realm of gossip, but it's right up there. Hmm. Well, maybe I'll shoot my last. Well, does that mean that the World Cups will be open Still, that's open. a good question, Steve. Because once that happens, what what is the World Championship? I guess that gets decided in Vegas. And is it still open? It can't be. They'd have to cut the top three team. I mean, you have to cut after the top three, right? Of each country. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's what you want to do. That's it, how like you do it. Yeah, that's yeah. how you solve that one. Yeah, I still. Yeah, they can call it whatever they want. The real world championship for world archery format is name. So did you know um, that in the building, you're not the only 
Feldbogenweltmeisterschaft. I heard there's another one running around downstairs somewhere. So, you know, it's bad enough having to do this podcast with one Feldbogenweltmeisterschaft in the room. But That's now, world, world master, master of the world. Master of the world. In case anyone was looking for the translation. So, so here's what happens, right? We get, we get magazines from around the world because Easton puts ads in magazines, as anybody that reads a magazine knows. Anderson here, he pulls up the German publication Bogensport. Compound Magazine. Uh-huh, okay. So Dr. Vordreger's magazine. Yeah, yeah, that's Dr. Vordreger's magazine, which sounds like a character like, from a movie, yeah, by the I like way. Yeah, I like his name. He sounds like a character from a sci-fi film, Dr. Vordreger. Anyways, so he opens this thing up, and across two pages it has his title in German. Der Feldbogen Weltmeisterschaft. Yeah. So we, besides, I think we covered this a little bit in the last episode, but it's, it's always worth going over again. But now now we've got two Feldbogen Weltmeisterschafts, as well as the indoor Bogen Weltmeisterschaft, our good friend and the master of pro points himself. It's Rod Menzer. Hey, um, it's good to be with big company. Yeah, and and boy, you know, big titles. And so so the cool thing here is okay, we've got two world field champions. I want you guys comparing notes. We've only got two uh, microphones, so I'm yes. gonna hand this thing back to Steve. And what I want you guys to talk about, first off, rainy weather, how you both dealt with it. Because you both mm-hmm. you both of you shot your world field championships titles in you know, less than perfect conditions in most cases, yeah. or in some cases. You had some during the week, Honestly. Steve, and, and we had nothing but mud in, in Wales. I was there. Yeah, and yeah. That my, was, that, that was, that was oh terrible. my. They yeah. shut down half the course because of that. Yeah. And, you know, those bridges in Wales, right? <laughs> Did you see the water? Yeah. Those were built in Victorian days. Yeah. So that was a fascinating event. And um, you've all, you're also a world indoor champion, and you're, you're one of the guys that makes a product that almost every top shooter uses – which is pretty yeah. cool because yeah. you know, I know what that feels like. And, and yeah, that's, that's pretty so we cool. We want to talk about all that. So here's okay. Steve. Yeah, so I, I kind of got fortunate. We had we had uh, a lot of wind, not so much rain. We had a little bit of rain, but it was a lot of practice day, if I remember right, and, and uh, the team day, which I just didn't bother shooting. You know, I wasn't on the team. Dave had uh, qualified top, so Dave was the team. And I didn't bother to shoot on practice day. It was just too – it's too gnarly. I felt yeah. like I'm just gonna bag it, but you know, you <laughs> you and I have shot together in uh, in Reading with some yeah. rain and stuff like that. Yeah. So you've got the tips and tricks. What's yeah. your number one tip for <clears throat> shooting a compound in the rain? Practice in the rain. Absolutely, practice in the rain. Nobody wants to do it, but if you do it, then you know what happens with your bow. You know what kind of gear you need to have. You know how to get the sight clear again. You 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 just have an understanding of what's going to happen. Once you have that then it's just hopefully another day. Um, if you look at the scores that were shot that year, I mean, I shot I shot the same scores that people have been shooting in the past few years in, in calm, and it was just you knew what was happening, um, even though it was pouring, and but you, you knew what your bow was going to do, you knew what your arrows were going to do, and, and um, that made all the difference. So do you uh, regularly wax bowstrings? Um, no. I am I'm not a good maintenance guy when it comes to regularly waxing anything or um, wiping my bows down outside of you know getting all the rain and stuff off it. But um, I, I don't do that. My, to be honest, the biggest prep that I do is is has to do around the lens and getting little uh, little pieces of um, um, what I use is bounty. 
Um, to paper suck, towel. Yeah, paper towel, but it has to be bounty, the quicker picker-upper, you know, because that way it uh, it brings out the drops by just touching so much better than the other stuff. So, right, yeah, you, know. you just kind of dab it down on there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think in Reading this year, you brought me some, yeah. as you call them, <laughs> pre-cuts. Pre-cuts. You exactly. showed up with individual <laughs> squares of bounty pre-cut to the appropriate length to fit That's inside right. the scope i remember uh, borrowing a few of those to the broadwater once as yeah, well I, um, yeah. so yeah no it works it jesse works and i are in debt to you <laughs> both of us are in debt to yeah, you. yeah i should have never talked to you in the shooting field archery it made my job <laughs> well it made me well i wasn't in the last two world championships steve was so you know it's the way it goes uh <laughs> no it's it's been good it's been fun to watch and and I mean, the the quality of the shooting now is just, it's up, up, up in a way. So what a lot of people don't realize, though, is Mr. Menzer here, before he was a compound bow guy, <laughs> was one of the top recurve guys in the country in the early 90s. Yeah. yeah. And we could tell stories about places like <laughs> Columbia, but we no, won't. No, we don't want to tell stories. <laughs> but we could. There are stories to be in told. In private, maybe. <laughs> Some other time, maybe. But... <laughs> But, yeah, there are stories. But, yeah, Mr. Menzer here was uh, also a top recurve shooter. So maybe just a little bit about the transition. You know, what was that like going from recurve to compound back almost 20-something years ago? Yeah, you know, I, I started uh, compound as a, as a little kid and then went to recurve. Um, you know, that was a that was a difficult transition, actually, um, it, because just alignment and the forces and everything and no let off, it, it was a big transition, um, even though I was coming from 55% let off at the time. But now – um, going from recurve to compound, to be honest, that was really an easy transition. Um, once you can shoot recurve and shoot recurve good, compound is 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 really not that hard. And I think uh, you know, especially with the bow arm, I think it really is huge. Not long after you picked up the compound, you went to yeah. the World Indoor Championships and yeah. became World Indoor Champion. Tell us about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, you know, I uh, I shot with um, with uh, Rio and uh, cousins in Denmark. And uh, we uh, so we set a world record and and won the gold in the team round there. Um, that record actually stood for ten years. Um, and it was funny because Rio, when he was a young kid, shot that world record uh, with his dad. And a buddy of mine that I shoot with back home, Mike Hendricks, he was also on that team. And they set that world record. And then here it is, ten years later. My buddy's not there, but I'm there. And then Rio's still there. And we. We crushed it and uh, and set that world record, so it was it was pretty cool and and pretty a uh, great memory. Good guys to uh, to beat the world record from. Yeah, that was uh, from what I have heard. That was quite the raucous crowd there yeah. in Denmark. Yeah, that was. Uh, I have to say that was definitely uh, Dave Cousins got the f- crowd fired up, um, and uh, that the crowd. Well, you were at full draw, and I really, to be honest, I wish this is the way it was in archery today. And all the big shoots when they're doing the finals in Vegas and everything, is the crowd was yelling and they were yelling so loud that you could you could kind of feel it on your shirt and you could feel it on the floor. It was it was incredible. They were yelling and screaming, doing everything they could to get you to miss. Um, and then when the competitors were, you know, I shouldn't say the competitors, when the other folks were shooting that we were shooting against. We had our guys, Team USA and Canada and others, that were yelling and screaming for us. So it was great back and forth and probably the most fun of any finals venue I've ever seen um, in archery, period. So what's pretty cool is we have your guys' targets in yeah. here on our wall. So yeah. With you guys all signed them. Um, 
Yeah, that's, I wrote a little thank you note to to Easton, and, yep, and they're all absolutely. in a frame here. Who were you guys shooting against there? Um, we actually were shooting against Italy in the final, uh, um, but the toughest match was against uh, home country Denmark. Ed Eliasson was actually their coach, and we got into a shoot-off with those guys at a home country, so you can imagine what the crowd was doing then. Um, it was just really going berserk. <laughs> so um, it, was, it was really uh, <clears throat> it was interesting, but believe it or not, that is the very first tournament that pro points were shot in, and there were prototypes in my arrows. So you had just created that product not too long before. Yep. And now it's become, I'd say, Steve, what do you think the most uh, the most popular point among top shooters in the world right now? Yeah, it's probably one of the very uh, like you alluded to. It's one of the very few products where everybody seems to use it. Kind of like the Pro Tour, right? It's yeah, sort of like the. Yep. If you're shooting indoors, you got to have pro points. If you're shooting 3D, you got to have pro points. It's it, you know, it's yep. the kind of product that uh, has become the standard. Yeah, you're going to win Olympic gold medals. You better have an X10, yeah. right? Yeah. That's so the, the pro is. point is like that in, in yep. its space. Absolutely. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. <laughs> well, I know you got to catch a flight, so I, I just got to thank you for stopping by. And I appreciate it's it. Always a pleasure seeing you, my old friend. <laughs> Absolutely, it's been fun. Thanks. Weltmeisterschaft <laughs> in both indoor and field. Rod Menzer here on the Easton Podcast. Always great to catch up with that guy. Totally. Yeah. Hey, we are remiss in not having answered a whole slew of questions that we've got from listeners, and I think we'll close out the show with a bunch of those. I'm going to start with the uh, podcast at Easton TP ones while you uh, queue up some of the Facebook ones. And um, you know what I just noticed? We just got a... Uh, <laughs> We have an email here from the ATA wanting to know if we want to attend the trade show. We came into podcast at East DP. <laughs> Seriously, I'll show you later. All right, so uh, here's an email from, uh, from Dave. Uh, Dave, who says he enjoys the podcast, says he's looking to move beyond his club's equipment and get his own bow. Uh, Dave is a recurve shooter with plans on shooting in some competitions next year. So he's got two questions. Question number one, his coach is angling him toward a lower-end riser in the $200 range. Is there any reason he wouldn't spend more on a riser in this five dollars to $600 range? My thinking is I'd rather grow into a riser I'd use for years to come rather than grow out of a cheap one within a year or two. And then two, there aren't really any Target Archery Pro Shops in my area, so I won't be able to try any products before I buy one. How does one go about picking out a riser without being able to try first? Risers seem to be a lot about personal tastes. Are there any generalizations you can make about the major brands? Hoyt versus Win and Win. All right, so Dave, you have a coach. You are lucky enough to have a coach. Listen to your frickin' coach. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I hate when I'm coaching somebody and they go to the internet for advice and then argue with me with advice they got from people who've never met them, never seen them shoot, never had any idea who they are, what they are, what their goals are. If, you're, if you've got a coach and you've discussed those things with your coach, trust your coach. I don't mean to be salty about this, but I do really feel that if your coach told you go buy a $200 riser, maybe that coach has a reason for that and you ought to talk to the coach about that. He or she may have a very good reason. And that addresses your number two question. How do you know what you want? You're going to go blow 600, actually more like eight, on a top-end riser these days? You know? I, you better get some more experience before you go spending that kind of money would be my personal advice. What do you think, Steve? Um, 
I'd go find some members of the club. You know, generally people are very willing to let you try their stuff. So if you can find some find some uh, club mates who have dove into that, purchased risers of their own. If they let you try it, great. Uh, if the shop will let you try it, even better. And if not, I mean, you can at least pick them up, hold them, handle them. You know, I, I don't think I would buy something without handling them. I'd wait until I could get uh, multiple different risers in my hands. Even if that means going to a, a large local event, you know, and, and finding uh, just just looking at people's bows. Okay. So thank you for that question. A question from Jackson Wells. Just curious, if WA had no limit on arrow size whatsoever, what would be the largest diameter shaft that Easton could make that is still structurally sound or that is actually tunable for today's modern compounds? Also, is there potential for thinner arrows for outdoors in the future? So the first question is, what's the biggest diameter shaft that we could make still structurally sound? And the answer is, we make them all day. They're called military tent tubes. <laughs> and they're like... Well, we've got some large stuff back there. Oh, yeah. You know. So here's the deal. I mean, we, we probably ought to think about why is there a limit in the first place? There's a limit because a Swiss guy showed up at the World Indoor in 1995 with ski poles in his quiver. Literally. I'm not exaggerating. Took out the 10 ring on every shot. That's awesome. Yeah. But <laughs> it broke the rule about not doing undue damage to the target. That was how they were able to stop him from yeah. shooting those. See, I think that's a lame rule. Well, okay. But it was the out that they needed at the time because they were almost an inch in diameter, these arrows. Mm -hmm. you know. So, and the guy knew he was going to get busted because he had actual proper arrows as well he didn't just show up with those he was he was trying to push the limits of what could you could get away with but he is the reason that swiss guy is the reason why world archery the following year imperated a 9.6 limit i applaud him so all right so 9.3 9.3 excuse me i'm sorry 9.3 so um you know the largest diameter shaft that we could make that's still structurally sound is pretty freaking big now, yeah, because, I mean, they start out pretty freaking big. Yeah. Yeah, they do. <laughs> you know, um, if you knew how many draws it takes to get to uh, the core tube of an X-10, you'd be like, wow, how come they don't cost more? <laughs> well, I, people are always amazed when I showed them a, a tube before the draw. You know, and I say, this will end up being your 2315. Just one draw. Yeah, is, just before the, yeah, before the first draw. Yeah. The tube is gigantic. Yeah. All right. So, also, uh, Jackson wants to know, is there potential for thinner arrows for outdoor in the future? Sure. You just figure out how to stop them, and we'll get back to you. And afford them. Actually, the truth is we could make arrows a third smaller than an X-10 right now. But you wouldn't be able to put points in them. You'd have to have some kind of external component, and you really would have trouble stopping them. And they'd be expensive. Oh, well, there's that part, too. They'd be about 900 bucks a dozen. Nice. Not good for the sport. I've talked about this before. So that's why we don't do it. Um, you know, basically, that's that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. You got a Facebook one you want to tackle? Yeah, first one. Um, this is from Jay Bernard, local guy here. He actually works uh, like a half mile from us. He's right over here at the Budweiser Distribution Center. Okay. Yeah. Um, How come we haven't got a hookup for that? <laughs> he says... Uh, he, he goes into Utah Open. He had an archer in front of him with a, 
a forward facing quiver and, you know, fairly long arrows, um, entering into his lane. And he said, he even bumped me when I was at full draw a few times. Is there a hindrance type rule? Uh, what is the ruling on interference and how is it applied? Well, good sportsmanship is what applies here. Okay. So here's the deal. If somebody's poking with an arrow or bumping into you, big boy rules should apply, but sometimes they don't because no matter how polite you may be to somebody who's, you know, uh, rude to you on the line, they may be stupid and continue to do what they're doing. So that's what, you know, you get a judge. Now let's say that this is a tournament that doesn't have a judge. Well, then you got a, you know, you got an issue. You got to work it out just like you would any other social issue. Hopefully not a road rage type social issue. But the reality is that, you know, there's a good sportsmanship rule in our sport. And, um, you know, that is something that, like I said, big boy rules. If a archer is interfering with another archer, your recourse is, the first recourse is to try to work it out between yourselves. If that doesn't work, go to a judge. If the judge observes the problem, they'll handle the problem. In the case of you misshooting an arrow because somebody bumped you, unfortunately, there are no do-overs in world archery. I think in NFAA? I think somewhere, there might be maybe some, in world archery now, there is a rule for interference. I don't know. There's no do-overs in world archery. In one of them, there is. I think, you know, if I if it was witnessed or something. There's no do-overs in world in archery. In NFAA, I'm talking here. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. yeah you get a Yeah, in NFAA, uh, I agree with you. There's some kind of a reshoot like rule for that, yeah. Yep. Okay, back to the podcast questions. I've got one from Jonathan Eskills. And Jonathan says... I guess if I'm ever at a World Cup and I'm going to lose, I'll just kick the guy in the side right as he's about to fire. Then you're going to get the sportsmanship rule invoked immediately. Well, but he'll miss the target. Jonathan Eskills from Sweden... So who loses? ...says, in the middle of shoveling snow and fending off wild moose, I thought of some questions I could ask you. Why is tungsten not used for stabilizer weights? It would shorten the weight stacks and position the bulk of the mass more at the tip. Is it just too expensive? Is there another reason? No, it's too expensive. I have always heard that good recurve form does not translate to good compound form and vice versa. What is the reasoning behind that statement? I don't know if I agree with that. I think that good recurve form partially can translate to good compound form depending on the shooter. Butch Johnson, for example, used to shoot compound and then he basically adapted his compound form to shoot recurve, and I don't think anybody would argue with his results. Some of the fundamentals apply. Stance, balance, timing, Mm -hmm. those things. I guess if you're a a recurver who was trained on, you know, shot execution and not not very much a component of aiming, because I do read a lot about this, and, and, uh, you know, I've read about the detriments of trying to be trying to aim too fine with a recurve and how that can really affect people's shot execution and such and such. So if you're a guy who's gotten far in recurve without ever being much of an aimer, more of just, I'm going to try to execute good shots and land where they may, you know, I'm not going to, I might not rip up the scoreboard, but I will very rarely make a lot of mistakes. You know, if you're, if you're that guy, then you try to go to compound, that might be tough. Good luck, you know, because there is a – it's all about how well you can aim. Savory or sweet? Um, I'm going to go with savory. Yep. I don't mix my sweet or savory. Savory. When or why should I use an angled stabilizer mount, and why is it not suitable for recurve? I 
if you're starting to see you're shooting 90 meters and you're seeing the tip of your stabilizer in your sight picture, <laughs> probably go to that angled mount. I am. Uh, I don't believe in angled mounts unless, you know, a situation like what you're looking at for compound guys. I, if you want to lower your center of mass, then an angled mount will do that for you. But other than that, it effectively shortens the bar. Um, if you aren't looking to lower your center of mass, then just get a shorter bar and have, you know, three inches less mass out there to be caught in the wind. And why is it not suitable for recurve? Well, actually it can be because I built angled stabilizer mounts into bows for a particular shooter, uh, Hiroshi Yamamoto of Japan, when I worked at Hoyt, because Mr. Yamamoto has a relatively small sight radius of jawline that is anchor point to eye. And so when he'd get to full draw, he'd see the front of his stabilizer coming into the sight picture. Like into the target. And actually, he'd have very little clearance between the arrow path and that stabilizer. And so we gave him a five-degree down angle uh, built into the riser for him. So yeah. that, you know, um, that's the only person I've ever done that for, come to think of it. But, yeah. you know, that can be suitable. Mm -hmm. Why is a compound grip generally lower than the recurve grip? Weight. Holding weight. You can get away with... You know, you could shoot a low grip on a recurve, but it would hurt. Relative. They, I relative think they're talking that. about the, not the. Uh, oh, does he mean the angle? They're mm. talking about the actual position of the grip. Could be in relation to the burger hole, mm. which they aren't always different. True. Some shoot. Some bows are set up. Some compounds are set up to shoot through the center of the bow, and some compounds Correct. are set to shoot through the do, you know, hold through the center of the bow. So yeah, there's and I could. A lot of recurves are set to hold through the center. So yeah. I'm, I've gone back and forth with bows that are grip low versus grip in the center. Matthews, early Matthews bows were grip low typically. Yeah. And I think then they went to grip center. Yeah. Hoyts have been button center back and forth. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's changed now the button is center Yeah. before grip was center. Yeah. So it, it does have an effect actually. Um, you know, and it's mostly to do with the cams and the knock travel need to be built specific to the grip position okay but it's not i haven't noticed an issue between one or the other how does one keep their hands warm enough to shoot in winter time i have two approaches uh san diego or you just mentioned you're fending off wild moose what you need to do is attract the wild moose watch about 18 minutes into the second star wars movie empire strikes <laughs> back you know episode five uh, okay the um Empire Strikes Back, right? Yep. Yeah, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> or shoot indoors. Or shoot indoors. And for the finale, when you make or choose a sight tape, you use two distances for reference, but because the trajectory for a projectile is exponential onto the power of X and not linear, oh my, you theoretically should have three distances for reference and calculate the function so you don't get a big deviation with distances that are far from the reference. Is this ever applied in archery? And is it worth doing if you have the know-how? Uh, Archer's Advantage takes care of that for you. There was a, yeah, it's interesting. There was a program that you could enter up to like five distances. And I used it for a while. And Archer's Advantage with its two distances was always better. I really enjoyed these questions from John. And, and they had this one with five distances. Anything under my shortest distance, which my minimum I could input was 20. Anything under that was considerably off, like a full turn of my sight or more. Whereas with Archer's Advantage, it was... The, the numbers between my two set distances were within two numbers of this 
other program and everything under my low number was dead on. As a practical matter, what you're really trying to do is compensate for drag factor on your veins and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's some stuff going on there. Typically though, you know, any of the good programs get you pretty darn close with only two references. Right. All right. So I'm going to pick up some of the questions we got on the last uh, time that we solicited questions, which was uh, back on November the 20th. So, because uh, we got some great questions there. Um, you answered one of these, Steve. So I'm not going to, uh, anybody can go to our Facebook, Easton Target Archery, and look at Rodney Chambers' good question and the answer that you gave him. But uh, there's some others that we didn't get to. So let's, let's look at a couple of these here. Chuck Cooley, is George looking for your footprints in the paint of the WAEC, or was that a different location you walked under the ropes? <laughs> I think we answered that one for you, Chuck. Yeah. The other question from Chuck, which is presumably more serious. Um, 23 series aluminum and indoor season. Short draw, low pounded shooters. Better to go with the 23.12 or 13 and low to moderate point weight, or the 23.15 with longer shaft and heavy point? In other words, hit the right spine with more length and weight, or go with shorter and lighter? Um, I honestly, I, I will tell you what I think, but I want to hear what you think for obvious reasons, Steve. I, I prefer the correct spine without having to go to a real heavy point. Yeah, and uh, setting up Linda's bow, we tried 23.12, 23.14, and 23.15, and by all means, the weakest one, the 23.12, should be the one, but she shot the 23.15 the best. So um, not sure why, you know, there's – a lot going on when you start cutting an arrow at about 29 inch length and because realistically they're all stiff on the chart you know even the the weakest ones around a 420 spine where she shoots like a 570 outdoors so it's uh if it were me setting up most people i would say for short draw people go with the 2312 and figure out a point weight and length that works well with that you know somewhere I don't think you want to cut them much under 28 inches if it's really short draw and really low poundage. But, you know, point weight, uh, you might have success with 100. You might have success with 200 or anywhere in between. Got a very similar question from our friend Steve Yee, who pointed out that the indoor world record that Brady Ellison set recently was done with a uh, X7. Um, And do we go for spine or line cutters when you want indoor precision for FIDA indoor? And, uh, you know, again, I, I think spine trumps line cutters. Yeah. Uh, especially with, with recurve with compound spine is okay. Fairly, different game. Yeah. It's yeah. fairly irrelevant sometimes. Yeah. yeah different game. Uh, it can be important. Jeff Jenkins. Is there any formula to determine where on a shaft a vein or feather should be placed? Uh, yeah. As far back as you can manage without getting interference with your fingers or release would be the the quick and easy answer there the further back the more effect right correct yep yep um so yeah as long as it's not touching your face at full draw yeah, or something yeah you, you know too far forward less effect so keep that in mind and uh he wants to know are x7 eclipse shafts still available that's actually what brady used to win the uh the uh the world record the new world record set that world record and yeah they're available in a multiple uh, group of sizes you can download our catalog at eastonarchery.com uh, there's a pdf download of the catalog yep scroll to the very bottom there's a tab called downloads 
and that's where you'll find it. So you can find all those. Um, Justin Clark wants to know, assuming a knock level setting, what effect does running your knock height higher or lower through the burger hole have on a compound? And that answers another question we had from Shannon Turner. She asked, does knock height only affect the hold characteristics of a bow and not arrow flight as long as everything is adjusted for good flight? Uh, so it's kind of the same, you know, their questions are They're similar. They're interrelated. Yeah, and if, you know, by all means, if you got arrow flight to match up, then yes, the knock height's only going to affect the aiming characteristics, the way the bow would hold. Okay. Pat Murray, uh, just to shift gears here, has this question. Uh, what is your process to mentally prepare for a big tournament? Are you doing anything different to prevent nerves affecting your shot execution? I'm sure that's uh, for you. Yeah, the minute you do something different, now you're going to affect the way you are, you know? So, my honestly, the way I have approached this is kind of uh, – I've kind of taken the, the big tournament out of it, right? I mean – I said a long time ago, start going to tournaments early and jump in the fire, see how well you burn and don't make a big deal out of them. You know, I've been to enough Vegas's and failed enough times that I kind of don't get excited for Vegas anymore. So maybe that'll actually work to my advantage someday. So far it has not, but uh, for other tournaments it has, you know, and a uh, top level shooter like Mike Schlosser, he, you know, I was with him once he had a, a bad round or something got beat, got knocked out. And he said, oh, well, we're shooting again somewhere else next weekend. You know, and that's uh, kind of the approach he takes. Now, for a lot of people who aren't competing on that type of uh, a circuit like he is where, you know, the opportunities are frequent, um, you know, these tournaments are going to seem like a bigger deal to you. But you don't have to I, – I wouldn't change anything you do. I wouldn't shoot more practice arrows before – um, you know, I would treat it just like your local league night. If, if you're trying to perform well at league, which I think most all of us are, cause we're competitive by nature, uh, then treat it the same way you would league. Cause that's probably where your best performances have come, probably where your highest scores have come. So do the same thing you would for the big tournament as you would for your league night. Shane Bates. I purchased a 30 inch CS contour stabilizer last summer. Would like to purchase a 12 inch CS contour stabilizer as well. Where can I find one? Are they available to the public? Great podcast and end of comment. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, they are available, Shane. Um, You can find them if you're in the U.S. uh, Lancaster Archery carries them. Any Easton dealer can order them. They Mm -hmm. are available. Uh, You can find them on our website at www.eastonarchery.com. So, yeah, they've been available since about July. Um, There's one for you, Steve, from Tom Ashton. Does Steve use different stabilizer weights or configurations for indoor versus outdoor versus field? Uh, yep. I've talked about this a little bit, but um, indoor and outdoor usually are one and the same. For field, I generally have to go with the shorter back bar. So I go with a 12-inch as opposed to a 15. I put a little more weight on it, and I move it inside a little bit. And that's just because uh, shooting the hills, I want to take as much torque out of that as possible shooting on flat you know there's not an issue with with torque per se it's just a directional bias of the bow so yeah i do change it a little bit and just by necessity if i could have it one way i would here's a good question i think and and we may not be qualified to answer this steve you're maybe too young to answer this one for dennis brazzo but dennis wants to know um as he ages his eyesight is becoming farsighted and he's having trouble seeing the peep 
He can see his pin, his scope ring, and the target crystal clear, but he's having trouble seeing the peep body itself hmm. with enough clarity to discern between it and the scope ring. Any suggestions on a type, brand, exterior, size, or shape of peep? So he can't actually see the the black or dark ring from his peep. Yeah, so what's happened is he's you know he's gotten a little older, and, and things that are up close are harder to see. Um, mm. So... So it's probably more like just a shadow as opposed to a a dark mass. Yeah, but you know, you can still line that up. Hmm. If it were me, I would probably... I mean, it sounds to me like a ghost ring on a gun. Yeah, I I, I don't know if it'd be better to shoot an extremely small peep at that point or an extremely large peep. I would try one or the other, and I'm sorry for that wide (laughs) dispersion of answer, but I think that... There, there should be a solution. It, I would go for a large one. You could also try throwing some rattle can on there, painting it white, orange, green, pink, whatever. Try a different color yeah. to make it contrast. Especially if your scope is one color. Now you got to be a little careful if you're shooting out in the sun and you've got a, a bright, you know, a bright yep. peep. But uh, that certainly is a thought. Yeah, that would be, you know, an experiment. I'd start with that. <laughs> By the way, what about those peeps that have the fiber optic built into them? You've seen those? Um, they got a peep with a fiber optic, like uh, like four posts cruciform. around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's a, it, they're usually really large diameter for hunting. Uh, so it it may be worth trying though, especially if because uh, you could line those up. You could, yep. And if that's a problem, it's worth trying. I bet you, I bet you that might be a possible solution. Yeah, if it's really it gets down to it, there are some peep eliminator systems on the market. Um, I've never tried them. Some guys, you know, it's more of a bow hunting type thing. Um, but some guys have reported success with it. And it'd be, you know, last resort for me, but it may be worth looking at. Um, not the same type of question, but just something to consider here is a question from Rodney Chambers. It's a, a, an affiliated area of discussion. He's been using a large peep housing, one and five eighths, since he set up his first target bow, but he's considering going to a smaller housing of one and three eighths. What are the benefits of small over large of any, and what determines for you how far out front you run your site? Yep. So smaller housing for me on paper targets. He, Rodney shoots a lot of 3D, um, so that's why he probably liked the one and five eight inch housing, which is great for 3D. You can see a lot of animal uh, for 3D. Sometimes you need to reference bushes and things around a dark animal. Useful in a dark woody yep. environment. Um, the issue is you often we'll see on paper a fuzzy target so by going to the smaller housing you can go to a smaller peep and clear that up uh, without a clarifier if you don't want to use one of those so that's why most guys are going to use a small housing the other side of it is you know if i'm shooting i use the same housing outdoors for everything but field and you know shooting redding 101 yards i need a fairly small housing to get that clearance over the you know from the arrow launching out of the bow so that's that's part of it too. All right. Uh, picking length. Uh, there's a, there's a couple of ways. You know, the, if you're truly torque tuning your bow, um, then your sight radius makes a difference there as well. So you might try determining your sight radius while torque tuning your bow, or you may want to determine sight radius just by uh, whatever fits your preferred peep size the best. Okay. One more question that I think is worthy of, uh, of asking, and that is, um, I saw it here a moment ago. It's, uh, it has to do with what kind of drills you like to do. 
it's here somewhere. Here it is. Other drills for compound. This is from Francis Xavier. Drills for compound other than blank bail, short distance targets, and shooting games. What do you like to do when you want to mix it up a little bit? Um, the only time I do something that's out of just going and practicing the game I'm about to play is usually for Reading. I will prepare by shooting an undersized dot. So and what I mean is if my you know, Reading has specific dot sizes depending on the yardage. So if, uh, you know, a 10 centimeter dot is what I'm going to be shooting at 60 yards or from 50 to 60 yards, then I might shoot that at 70 yards just to get accustomed to aiming at a, a smaller dot. Um, just to expand your comfort zone a little bit? Yep. Is that the idea? Yep. I feel like for me, one of the hardest things to do is aim at very small dots. So, you know, the and at Reading – it gets it seems like they get smaller when you start shooting a you know a, a four centimeter dot at 19 yards which is like a you know a standard vegas 10 ring but you're only seeing the dot and it might be on a weird colored animal and it might be up or downhill now all of a sudden in other words for those who haven't seen a, a redding target it, there's no surrounding rings yep it's just an orange dot on a foam animal so so for me i'll shoot those at 25 yards you know that's my practice routine and I've often thought I should probably do that for Vegas. I should go shoot Vegas at 23 yards. You know, shoot a game there and then step up and shoot it at 20 yards, a standard, standard game. So do you see where our friend Sarah Lopez has decided that she's going to um, shoot Vegas with the big boy league? With the big open league. Yes, sir. It's yeah. no longer the big boy league. Yeah. <laughs> so I had dinner with Sarah and uh, Rio when we were, um, the last evening we were in Lausanne. And um, we were discussing this. And Sarah got a little bit of pushback from some of her sponsors on doing this because they felt that oh, this is not such a good idea. We'd much rather have you win the, the you know, the women's mm -hmm. event. And I can see that point, but I can also see Sarah going out there and, you know, doing well. She's already got more coverage uh, for Vegas than the winner of the women's event will get after they win. I have to agree with you. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good thing. I think that it was short-sighted on the part of that sponsor to say to her, oh, we'd rather have you do the women's. She's already got a ton of publicity just from, yep. you know, being the first one out there. Now, she's not the first one to actually, you know, I mean, she hasn't qualified, mind you. I mean, mm -hmm. she hasn't shot a 900. Mary Zorn shot a 900. Mm -hmm. And is it Sarah Lance? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. Um, but Mary she has finished on the podium there. Oh, yeah. Lopez has. Yeah. So, you know, and, and like her first time. Yeah. So, yeah. And mind you, now, Sarah Lopez is from Colombia. There's no indoor archery in Colombia for the most part. Nope. And um, by the way, she lost her first match ever in the last year and a half in Lausanne in the exhibition match for the IOC president that was shot at the uh, opening ceremony of the Lausanne Archery Center, you know, the so World Archery she, Excellence uh, Center. Who did she shoot Sarah against? Sonicson. Oh, okay. And then in the actual deal, the Lancaster, or sorry, Lancaster. Lancaster's coming up, by the way. Um, in the uh, Lausanne Archery Classic, which I'm going to presume is going to be a yearly event, maybe. In that event, uh, Sarah pretty well crushed it. Uh, yeah. So she's undefeated in actual competition mm. in the last year and a half. <laughs> Unfortunately, she was not able to make it to the World Cup final due to her injury. Yeah. So uh, it was a bit of a... It was the match that could have been with uh, the World Cup final with Sarah Sonicson, who did very well at the World Cup final, and Sarah Lopez, you mm -hmm. know, head to head with her. So that was a good match. Uh, let's see here. We've got a couple more. Actually, 
Um, covered a lot of the... Uh... I'm going to cover one more, and that is Zachary Evans. Got a question about bow sights. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he shoots Olympic recurve. He's curious about what to look for. Is it best to get the lightest thing possible or get something built like a tank? Does the heavier sight make a noticeable difference, or is it all a matter of preference to the archer? I'm going to cut to the chase here. I'm, full disclosure, I'm sponsored by Shiboya. I, I get sights from Shiboya every blue moon. Um, because Shiboya does not hand out sights to people. <laughs> you know, it's just the way they are. I like the Shiboya sight a great deal. It's um, lightweight. It's also built like a tank. Now, with that said, um, Axel makes a good sight, really good sight, and very well finished, impeccable machining, you know, um, a little heavier than a Shiboya. Um Here's what you really shouldn't do. You really shouldn't go buy a second tier site. That is false economy. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I could name names. I don't necessarily want to get into that whole marketing game, but go buy yourself a Shiboya Ultima and be done with it. Or go buy yourself an XL, whatever model, recurve yeah. XL, and be done with it. Yep. Yeah, you could pay, go pay screw once, around with cry others. once. Exactly. Yeah. You say pay pay once, cry once. I say buy nice or buy twice. Okay, I like that better. It it kind that, of rolls off the tongue. And well, as expected from you, Steve. You know, <laughs> I mean, you turn a phrase, man. Buy nice or buy twice. Buy nice or buy twice. Yep, I've shot both those. They both work good. Um, what are you shooting these days? Uh, Shibuya now. Yep, I shot I saw I shot Shibuyas when I first started in the game, and then I uh, shot Excels for a couple years and. Back to the Shibuyas, and and, yeah, and they're both good. Yeah. You know, the Excel site is a really good site. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen a couple little little things with them, and and you know, the Shibuyas have been bulletproof for the most part, and and my goodness, they are they are really just yeah. good. Now, Excel is good at staying on top of their product, and if yep. it needs an update, they update and it. And those folks work at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they work at marketing the thing, they work at developing the thing. The machining is second to none. It's nice stuff. But, uh, you know, and some people don't like the Shibuya because, quote, you have to take the whole block off when you want to put it away. Yeah, so. Never affected my precise. They're so precise, it doesn't matter. When you put them back together again, you're Mm -hmm. dead nuts perfect right on the same place because it's not a freewheeling knob. Yeah, either one of those would do you good. Yep, so that's that's our advice on that. Some of the older models, you know, I I would avoid the old heavy ones. Like those, those two models are pretty close in weight. The old heavy Excel, and maybe some of the old Sherlock's. I would. I, well, there's a reason I didn't mention Sherlock. The All old right. Sherlock's are probably pretty good. The old Sherlock's, when Steve Gibbs ran the company, they were a very well made site. Uh, they were a little bit finicky if you got them wet. Mine were always out of my when I shot them. This was a uh, 2010. I had a pretty high vibration bow, and. At my draw length, they they were not good, and yes, wet or dust, and they start they stop clicking so smoothly. They start sticking. They start doing some funky stuff. Yep. It's not gotten better since Steve passed away and the company was sold. I'm sorry to say. Now you know I've got a long history with Shiboya sites going back to '92 when I, I helped Butch Johnson, uh, you know, with his, and and then I took a I was the first person to put an ISO grid on a Sherlock, and really really pissed off my good friend Steve <laughs> Steve Gibbs who ran the company and um, after that he, he adapted it and lightened it up and you know he was a smart guy he was a good guy but unfortunately um, 
you know, it's not what I'd consider to be a first tier product uh, right. for this purpose. Get yourself a Shiboya, get yourself an Axel, one or the other. You, you'll save money by getting the Shiboya and not give up anything. And, and you'll be a happy camper, Zach. So that's, uh, that's it. The other uh, question for our podcast questions is, quote, from Jimmy Smith, is there a podcast for this? I guess we'll have to uh, post a link to the podcast on that comment. Ah, uh, yeah. I guess we will. All right. So if you have your questions, folks, thank you so much for uh, sending those into our Facebook page, which is Easton Target Archery on Facebook. Steve can take questions directly on his Facebook page at Veltmeister uh, Shep. No, no. Yeah, yeah. I haven't made that change yet. It's uh, yet, yet, yet. It's uh, Facebook.com slash Big Cat Archery. Because only a few people can spell Veltbogen Veltmeisterschaft. And I, I wouldn't even know where some of the keyboard shortcuts are for creating some of the accent marks that would go with that. But, uh, and then um, also you've got Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, Same at SteveAnderson88. Yep. So that is um, in addition to our dedicated podcast email, which is podcast at eastontp.com. You got anything to add before we wrap it up? No, I just got like 35 emails and like 17 text messages. I have a feeling this might be the last podcast of this particular 2016. Uh, yeah, I don't think we're, yeah. If Next we do week. another one, it's going to be a short one. It's going to be difficult, but um, don't count on it. <laughs> I think we'll. I think we're going to call this I, yeah. the "See You Next Year" podcast ending. We should have thought through that. We should have done like a year in review. Or oh, something. as if we think through anything when we do one of these things. No, maybe maybe next week if there's like a brief minute, we'll just do a year in review. You know what? I like that idea a lot. I'll be here next week. You'll be here. <sighs> it's ATA. Okay. Send off. So therefore, for me. yeah. Therefore, no promises. Yeah. Do you see they stole back your samples of the Microflex stabilizer? I saw that, yeah. It's... Oh, that's an irritating thing. Boy, they came out nice, though. Man, they, they look, look good. good. Yeah. Wow. And we got another really cool thing that's coming up at the ATA show that we're... This is going to be cool. Should be good stuff, it's yeah. Should be good stuff. All right, so we may have another one for you. We may. But for this one, it's... End of show. End of show. <laughs>